Welcome to the Lot Carey Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Market in Piscataway, New Jersey, and learning coordinator for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. The Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving weekly podcast grows from a multi-year journey among pastors committed to flourishing in ministry. This is a project of the Lot Carey Foreign Mission Society and is made possible through the generous support from the Lilly Endowment. Learn more about Lot Carey and how it helps churches to extend the Christian witness throughout the world at lotcarey.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. Join us for weekly conversations with pastoral thought leaders who share wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Let's join Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, Associate Dean for Vocational Formation and Christian Witness at Duke Divinity School and the Project Director for Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. This week, He's in conversation with Reverend Dr. Deborah B. Smith, Superintendent for the Metro District of the Memphis Conference of the United Methodist Church. We rejoice to welcome in conversation today, Reverend Dr. Deborah B. Smith. She's the Superintendent of the Metro District in the Memphis Conference of the United Methodist Church. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for spending time and conversation with us today about flourishing in ministry. Thank you for having me today. I am indeed honored and blessed to have this conversation. We've been in a journey uh, for a few years with several pastors in something that we have called pilgrimages of striving and thriving. It's really a journey that has to do with flourishing in ministry. And the way that we think about flourishing is not like you can just drag and drop something, but rather flourishing can be understood similar to a tree that may have leaves at times and other times there are blossoms. Sometimes the leaves are falling away. And then there are other times where there are only branches but still the tree is healthy and thriving. And while that's one way of thinking about flourishing, could you describe for us what flourishing in ministry looks like to you? Uh, Let me say that I like the metaphor of the tree uh, where you can have, whether it be flourishing, you can have blossoms, but so you can have a tree that is just barren and sick and not thriving. So um, flourishing for me would be a tree that is planted, it is solidly rooted. And so a pastor is one who would go into a church and its context and be aware of what is going on in that community and what is going on in the church. 
in the culture of the church, where their uh, priorities are and what they have committed to do. And that may sound strange because uh, when we're in church, we believe everybody is there and they have a commitment to Jesus Christ and what that looks like. But we know that the church can be multidimensional. Some of us come there with other goals. Um, so a pastor who goes in and does some kind of asset mapping in the community to see where their strengths are, what can and does the community contribute to the overall, uh, I would say the uh, foundation of the church. How do they perceive that church? What would they say if that particular church, if it were not there any longer? So I think that's important to go in and, and see what assets that community has. And then the question becomes, what should a pastor do with all of that? Well, I would think that the pastor, first of all, should do the same thing with the congregation to see where their goals and priorities are as well. And to make sure that we are in a situation where we can match the gospel with our actions and what we're called to do. So after having gotten that information, then let's look and see how we can frame the gospel and especially in a black context to address any injustices that we have already seen in the picture and to see whether or not congregation is committed to going out of the church walls and into the community to walk alongside with the uh, citizens there or to even lead in some instances. So for me, a flourishing ministry would be one where it's not static within the walls of the church. It's outside, it's in communications, and it is done to offer the uh, empowering nature of Jesus Christ, where it is one that is full of action and where we can exercise our faith as one of power to bring the good news and promise of Jesus Christ. But in that good news, it should be liberating. It should be one where we know, we see, and we are here not to judge, but to offer Christ so that we can see a way out together with hope. And so with the tree analogy, I think if one goes in like that and plants those kinds of seeds for their tree, it should flourish. The community can own that church and not see it as a place that they don't know anything about and view it as mysterious, but maybe could feel more welcome if they are not uh, attending that church at that time, but they don't necessarily have to attend. If we have ministries that are thriving and um, attending to the desires and the needs of that community in collaboration with members of that community, then it should thrive. It should be grounded in prayer. And the, the pastor should be the leader out there to show them this is, how, this is how it looks when you walk in faith, that you're not afraid of your neighbors. And I say that because I've had several pastors who've gone to some churches within the uh, certain neighborhoods, and when asked to go out and do outreach or lock arms with the neighbors, one very candidly said to me, well, you know, pastor, we are afraid of our neighbors. And 
I said, and perhaps it was kind of a flip answer, but I think rightfully so, a great response. I said, well, one thing you should know, they are afraid of you too. And so, uh, and they looked, I said, they don't know what you're doing. They don't know what your motives are. So I think once we get rid of that barrier and own why we are resistant to getting out and contacting and connecting with our neighbors, then we can move forward. And that causes the tree to flourish. It takes root. You talked about asset mapping. That's not a term that is widely used in some churches. Could you talk just a little bit about what you mean when you say asset mapping? Yes, and you're right. That's a carryover from the days when I worked at the university. Um, so asset mapping would just be just a little walk maybe, first of all, through the neighborhood or a drive to see what grocery stores are there. Where do people gather? Who is the informal leader in that neighborhood? Uh, are there any hospitals, any healthcare uh, providers in that neighborhood? What about other churches? Is there a possibility where we could get an ecumenical network going in that community to see what is already being done? When we're in that community, we sometimes don't have to go in and create something. We could walk alongside of another group that is maybe addressing the same thing. So asset mapping, how many schools, um, also about how many citizens are in that community, how many children are in that community. As you've talked about um, the importance of knowing your community and um, having an asset-based approach, knowing who is there formally, informally, uh, individuals, institutions, uh, then it's pretty clear that the context where a pastor serves is crucial to the kind of content of ministry. And uh, we've, we've been exploring uh, this, what we call formula for flourishing that mm -hmm. holds in relationship one's leadership capacity, one's service context, mm -hmm. and how that should yield ministry content. So you've helped us to have an idea of how you see context is so crucial. Can you talk to us a little bit about capacity? How does a pastor's capacity contribute to content of ministry? Well, that's a great question because first of all, we have to look at uh, the fact that some of our ministers, a great majority, come from a, di di a different socioeconomic background sometimes than the people they are called to minister to. And with that, there's a requirement. I think they must be compelled to go out and look at the neighborhood, the context in order for it to form their capacity. But capacity also means to me they have the training, most of them for the most part, and they have read, they have learned, but how does that uh, education translate into how they tend to their sheep in the church and outside the church? 
So with that also comes the question, how amenable are pastors to change when they find themselves in a church that maybe if you look at it, I say give it a quick cursory kind of glimpse, it may not match what they are accustomed to. So how do they build capacity for that? Well, I think capacity, first of all, is built by relying on some of the things that they've learned, but also applying it to the landscapes of their own ministry where they are. And how successfully can you do that? Can you take your middle-class lens out of it and just look at the lens of those you're engaged in ministry with through the lens of Jesus Christ with the compassion and the grace and not being judgmental, not using words like them and us. When, when we think through a different lens and there's a mismatch, we won't communicate if we don't ground it in where we are. So I would say that capacity has to be informed by everything around us and not just the textbooks. You know, you uh, have uh, been blessed with a, a, a very distinguished career and opportunities for um, intellectual and vocational um, success and accomplishment. And so someone might look at you and say, you know, Dr. Smith, she, she, I never can be who she is. She's so far ahead of me. But I suspect that you haven't always been the person of accomplishment that you enjoy now. Could you say a word to us uh, about some area of leadership where you have had to grow? I, I just feel the need to say I am the second eldest of nine children. And I was the first to even attend and graduate with a post-secondary education. So you are correct about that. Starting out, being in education and certainly then going on to uh, teach and lead at a university, I had to learn very quickly about consensus and collaboration. Um, I think growing up, I had been pretty exposed to the uh, most patriarchal and also um, autocratic kind of leadership where this is what I think, this is what will happen. And implicit in that was, if you don't like it, you could leave. So I never wanted to be that leader. I never did because I always found that to be frustrating, demeaning and dehumanizing in many ways. So the one thing that I wanted to do was learn how to be better, how to engage people and to get their voices in and so they can be heard as to what we can and should not do. So that was a growing itch for me, how to not shut people out, but to engage people and welcome and honor the things that they had to say. Now, I may have said, we may not always agree, but let's at least respect what we have, what others may have to say and where we can or cannot reach a compromise. And it's okay. We don't always have to agree on everything, 
but we can listen to one another. So that was one area that I believe I really had to grow in. Being a professor in your classroom, sometimes we feel like that's just our eminent uh, domain, so to speak. And, and, you know, being a teacher on secondary education, that was my classroom and nobody could tell me anything about what to do. And the same thing in a church. This is my church, my people, and we're just going to do what I say do. And I've even heard that growing up from a pastor. And I just, it made me feel uneasy because it just made me think and believe that my voice did not matter. So I had to make sure I did differently. Are there some steps that somebody could take to learn how to be more collaborative? I would say just to see it in practice, because if we lead in a certain way, that's because we've been conditioned to lead that way. That's all we've seen. So in order to match that conditioning and undo it, I think the more opportunities we have to see that in practice, then the more inclined we are to engage in it ourselves. But we have to be willing to try. It's, it's, it's difficult to break from old habits, but if we can do that, then we can engage in a change moment, a change opportunity. And again, that means we may have to lose some sense of ourselves of being in charge and then being willing to yield some of that to the people around us. No one idea trumps every idea, but collectively, we could probably come up with an idea, and oftentimes we do, when we engage other voices to get different perspectives. And then, so it's incumbent upon the leader as to how then to bring it all together. But I would say the main thing is read about it and then go observe it. A word to our listeners, Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast is funded by the Lilly Endowment through its Thriving in Ministry initiative. We'll be right back with more from the interview. Since 1897, the Lot Carey Global Christian Missional Community has helped churches to extend the Christian witness around the world. We collaborate with indigenously-led communities to bear good and faithful witness to Christ Jesus through ministries of evangelism, compassion, empowerment, and advocacy in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Europe, North America, Oceania, and South America. Together, we are touching lives with transforming love. You too can help to extend the Christian witness throughout the world. Visit us at lotcarry.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for praying for and investing in the good news globally through word and deed. Welcome back to the Lot Carry Podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. 
I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, the learning coordinator of Lot Carey's Thriving in Ministry program. Each week in this podcast, my colleague, Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, interviews a prominent Black pastoral leader to gain insight for flourishing in ministry. Now, back to more of his interview with Reverend Dr. Deborah B. Smith, Superintendent of the Metro District of the Memphis Conference of the United Methodist Church. What brings you the most joy? as a pastoral leader? For me, the most joy is when we're out connecting in the community, in the neighborhood, where we are being engaged in the lives of people in ways where they would allow us to be. Um, Also dismantling barriers and boundaries that maybe people did not know were necessarily there because institutionalized racism and other uh, forces like that are invisible if you don't know how to identify them and how to access them. So that brings me a lot of joy. How can we walk alongside and empower people whom we meet um, as to how they can navigate through through their community and through their lives to make a difference and to make it better. Can you share with us some of the best advice that you have received about pastoral leadership? The best advice I think I have received, and it may sound very simplistic, is whatever you do, whatever decisions you make when it's involving the church community or the community, don't be out on that limb by yourself. You get others to join you when it's time to make a decision or to effect some kind of change or anything that impacts the life of others, then you want to have somebody walking alongside you. And it may not necessarily be the people that you would think would follow you, but the Lord will send you somebody who could be out there with you. And then if you find yourself standing alone and everybody's at the tree, then maybe you, then maybe you might want to rethink what you're trying to do. And uh, that to me has been priceless because if you do have somebody who's also seeing the vision and dreaming it and living into it, then they usually can bring along some others. And the more unpopular the change may be, fewer people, but don't stand out there by yourself. And that has kind of bailed me out of a number of situations that could have been very controversial. Talking about not being out there by yourself, most black Americans are a part of churches that have majority black membership. Mm -hmm. And you are flourishing in a denomination that depending on what numbers you read, maybe around 5% uh, black uh, participation. Can you say a word to us about what it means or how you experience uh, being a 
black, both pastoral and denominational leader mm -hmm. in a denomination that is predominantly white? Mm -hmm. That was not my planned journey that I thought I was going to take. I started out as AME, African Methodist Episcopal. And then um, when my husband and I moved to New Orleans, I was so eager to connect with a community, a church community. And we noticed that we saw this sign that said Methodist. So we went in and the entire church, everybody looked like me, it was a black church, black pastor. And we were having the time of our lives, just really enjoying it. And then one day I looked up and it said United Methodist. I didn't think anything of it because everybody I met, everybody was black. Even the other churches we connected with was black. And at the time I had a great awakening. I um, invited our youth to go along with me. I was a youth minister at that time to an international meeting of the youth from the United Methodist Church. And there, my eyes were open. I realized <laughs> we were definitely in the minority. And uh, so even my youth, and I had about 50 with me, they said, I didn't know it was gonna be like this. I said, I didn't either, but isn't it great? I said, but this is what we're going to do. So they had like where, where the youth could sign up to work on the newspaper, sing in the choir or go out in the community. I said, so there are so many of you. I want at least five people on each one of these areas. And I had to sit back and reflect on that. And I just, I was stunned, but I felt welcome because I started out in a black church, although it had United Methodist as the denomination. So as time went on, my, my experience pretty much were I, were, I would say limited to the experiences of the black church in the United Methodist denomination. But after, soon after maybe I decided that I wanted to pursue ministry in the United Methodist Church, I still had somebody who was encouraging me and it was a black female. And when I questioned about the gender, I realized that the United Methodist Church had been ordaining women at least 50 years from the time that I asked prior. But I didn't see that in the pulpit, although we had that great history. But I went on and I pursued getting ordained in the United Methodist Church. And then reality hit me again. And so when I came to Memphis and knew that I had to finish my requirements for ordained ministry, I realized everybody on that board was white, Caucasian. And that's when I almost put on the brakes in my mind and spirit, like, Lord, can I do this? But I cleared, I cleared the uh, ordained ministry board. And then I was assigned to my first appointment, which was at a church located in a middle and upper class neighborhood. And I was the first person of color to walk into that pulpit as an associate. 
and it was a large church ministry. There, there were no people of color, maybe two, and that was it. I didn't know at first what to do. I knew I could not go out and preach the way I would have had I been in a black church. But then I realized faith is faith, no matter who may be sitting in the pews. And so I looked at, you know, as black people, we resonate with the Exodus story because it's liberation and um, God's promises that he kept to get us to the other side. Although there was another Pharaoh waiting on the other side. But um, I remember they were very lukewarm with my preaching. And this particular time I was talking about how the Lord had said Pharaoh would change his mind and he would start out with these frogs. And I, I'd mentioned one of the frogs, the frog story. And my mother had some frogs that she just really hated that had been gifted to her. And I brought them to the pulpit and I told them, you know, how people walking around, they got so used to frogs, they were on the heads, they were everywhere. And so the, the lesson that I wanted them to take from that, that sometimes we can be so entrenched in who we are and our privilege that we get accustomed to walking around in the middle of things and don't even notice as long as we still have our privilege and live in that privileged life. That some things may be an inconvenience, but sometimes we don't see the own, we don't see the frog on our own head. And they love that. And, and they say, well, you need to push us more. And I realize it was maybe my fear and my trepidation of offending somebody that I had not been true to the word. I had not allowed my prophetic voice to really come through. So I did uh, after I'd been there a couple of years because in ministry, you have to have some relational experiences with people before they can really listen to you and trust you. Especially I knew in that kind of environment, they had to know more about me. And so I, I remember, and I prayed about it. And the senior pastor said, what's in your heart? And I just said, I need to address some of the racist behavior I have encountered since being a pastor. And he said, go with what the spirit is giving you. So I never shall forget that sermon was moving from racism to gracism. And I talked about some of the racist experiences and words I'd heard as a pastor in that church. That did not go over well, <laughs> that did not go over well. But in that moment, I realized I have to be true to who I am and keep my voice and continue to offer Christ, even if it makes people feel uncomfortable. And I had an opportunity to talk about the oppressive systems and structures that were in place. But I also had an opportunity to push them out of their comfort zone. If you're gonna offer one word of advice to some 
practicing clergy or aspiring pastor about flourishing in ministry, what would that one piece of advice be? Be grounded in that community and look out and look up because there you will see the Lord in the people you interact with and you look up onto the hills from where it's coming to your help. So I would just say, always be grounded in that context. Know the people that you are reaching out to and then don't be afraid to act according to the way the spirit prompts you. You don't have to be comfortable. In ministry, we are not called to be comfortable, but we are called to offer the love of Jesus Christ. Dr. Deborah B. Smith, the Metro District Superintendent in the Memphis Conference of the United Methodist Church. Thank you so much for this time of conversation and for sharing so generously your wisdom with us. Thank you. It's been my joy to be here with you and just to have this conversation. Thank you for joining us today for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, a weekly podcast from Lot Carey as we listen in on conversations with prominent pastoral thought leaders. Join us next week for a conversation with a new guest and fresh insights. Wisdom from the Black Church for the whole church. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving is produced in partnership with Good Faith Media. Music by Makita McQuarrie. Share the word with those who need to hear it. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, wherever you get your podcasts. Also listen online at lotcarry.org. Mm-hmm.